Hello and welcome to Gilmore Ball Z, a podcast where I show my husband Gilmore Girls, he shows me Dragon Ball, and we try to find some sort of common ground. I'm Paige. And I'm Grant. And this week we watch Gilmore Girls Season 6, Episode 22, which is the season finale for Season 6, and Dragon Ball Z 143 and 144, which finish out a box set of Dragon Ball Z Kai, so it's kind of like a season finale. Grant, what happened on the season finale of Gilmore Girls? Oh my god, okay, so <laughs> we had we had a Lorelai plot and a Rory plot and inexplicably a Taylor plot. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to do the Taylor plot first because it's the quickest and nobody cares. Uh, so and, we, and we will talk about this Taylor plot a little bit more later. Yeah, and so it, it was established in an earlier episode, I think last week, that... Mm-hmm. Uh, the town troubadour got discovered and is touring with Neil Young. So I guess, according to Kirk's hypothesis, that seems to be correct, word got out that Stars Hollow is where you go as a street musician if you want to be discovered. Right. So now there are dozens and dozens of troubadours all bussing in to Stars Hollow to play music on the street. It's like... We've mentioned a couple times that one of the first vacations that Paige and I took together as a married couple was we went to Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico is a lovely place. You should definitely go. But one big thing in Puerto Rico is they do have a pretty serious problem when it comes to stray animals. And we'd heard about a, a shelter, that was, a cat shelter in particular, that was doing good work and we donated to and stuff. And so we wanted to go see what they were all about. I have to say, I did not think this is where you were going when we started this episode, but go on. And so we we were wandering around trying to find where this shelter was located. It was much smaller than we were anticipating, but we knew and we were going- And it's a shelter that like specifically did some adopt-out, but a lot of trap-neuter release. Yeah. So they trap a cat, they neuter it so it won't have any more kittens or, you know, impregnate other cats, and then release it out into the wild and kind of keep an eye on it. Yeah, and so we knew we were getting closer and closer to this place because the density of stray cats got thicker and thicker as we got closer. And suddenly when you're looking for it, you realize there's like a dozen cats all in plain sight. Where, you know, there's one under that car, there's one behind that trash can, there's one up in that tree, and just there's just cats everywhere. It's actually really fun, um, especially when you know that they've all been trapped, neutered, released, so, you know, they're not going to contribute to the problem. This is this is like that, but with musicians, where there's a couple like sweeping shots of the town square in Stars Hollow, and there's just dozens of musicians all packed in. Um, there were a good number of special appearance buys in the credits, so I'm sure a lot of those troubadours were actually famous musicians that I wouldn't recognize by their face because they're musicians. Um, yeah, and there's a couple of interesting things in there, so we'll talk about that later. Yeah, also including uh, Mary Lynn Rice Cub, best known as Chloe from 24, who I believe previously showed up as the co-star in Kirk's weird movie. Which kind of tracks. It kind of tracks, yeah. Um, uh, and she was specifically singing a song about her missing car and losing her car. She was in the movie Dude, Where's My Car? Was she so. in Dude, Where's My Car? She was a cultist. I did I not realize she car. was in Dude, Where's My Car? I first I first encountered her back when I watched 24, and I love I fell As in love with her. As most people did. As uh, most people did. Yeah, no, like, Chloe O'Brien was definitely, like, 13-year-old Grant's TV crush. Um, 
But yeah, she had a she had a minor role in Dude Where's My Car as a cultist. I haven't seen Dude Where's My Car, so I'm not sure how losing a car ends up with cultists, but apparently it does. Apparently it does. Isn't it like eventually gets to aliens, then it turns out that they just didn't look behind the van that parked in front of their car or something? Oh, anyway. I'm sure. Um so I mean you may get on it. Yeah, there's there's troubadours everywhere. Taylor's upset about it. Taylor continues to be upset about it. He calls the cops. The cops don't do anything about it because they're stars hollow small town cops. And, you know, this was before the rampant militarization of police. Uh, and then I don't we... know, but like he still says like it was before the rampant militarization, but he does make references to like tactics used in the civil rights movement. Yeah, to he threatens to turn the hose and the canine unit on them, which is like, wow, Taylor. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, those are most famous for being used for civil rights protesters. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah, they are most famous for being used on black people. Um, And, yeah, and then the town troubadour comes back and is like, man, I didn't even really make it big. I got $700 and didn't even get to meet Neil Young. And that's where that plot ends. Um, Yeah, that's basically it. So, Rory plot is also pretty straightforward. Uh, Logan leaves for London. Yep. That's the She Rory throws plot. a party somewhere in there and yells at Mitchum a couple times. Yeah, she has... The, the one thing that is uh, important and also made me mad is uh, there's a whole thing where it's like, Logan graduates, and so the next day he's going off to London like Mitchum wanted, and so he has to go get some drinks with his dad and his colleagues for a bit, and then, you know, it's, oh, I promise I'm all yours for the rest of the night, Rory. And... The meeting with his, like, the drinks with his dad end up going on for longer than expected because a bunch of Mitchum's colleagues show up and they have to hobnob for a while. Then Rory is like, he's doing it to keep you away from me. And so she confronts Mitchum in the elevator later and is like, why do you hate me? He's like, I don't hate you. Why do you think I hate you? She's like, because you're trying to keep me away from Logan. And he's like, name one thing I've done to keep you away from Logan. His relationships aren't my concern. Name one thing. And then Rory suddenly blanks on all of the legitimate things, uh, mostly the horrible way that the rest of the family has treated her and that he did nothing about it. And yeah, although Mitchum, Mitchum wouldn't take responsibility for that. No, he wouldn't, but that would at least be something. Uh, but instead, she's like, you kept him at the meeting because you want to keep him away from me. Like, no, that's the that's the flimsiest fucking argument you can bring. No, the, all the, like, quality Mitchum takedowns she had a couple episodes ago, gone. gone. Just all gone. Uh, and so he's like, I don't know why you're so concerned about this, but... I promise you, like, I'm concerned with Logan's future and whether or not you're dating him is is immaterial to me. I don't care. And storms off and then she feels insecure. Well, uh, and specifically, like, it is actually kind of like the Logan plot has desensitized us to caring about any of this. And that's fair. But the the interesting thing that happens here is a little bit more compelling than that. It's. He's saying, I don't care about your relationship. I care that he's still being a kid and not growing up. And all the things he does with the Life and Death Brigade, all the ways he's getting himself hurt, all the drinking with Colin and Finn, like he's wasting all of the opportunities he has and he's choosing not to grow up like I chose not to grow up. And so what I'm doing is I'm getting him out of that culture 
putting him into another culture where he'll be forced to grow up like I was. Are you opposed to that? And Rory can't respond because she's like, the implication is that she does want Logan to be able to grow up and take responsibility for the gifts he has and not just drink away his life. But she still can't stand behind what Mitchum is doing. And so later in the episode, when Logan says, tell me not to go, she doesn't say anything. So there is slightly a more like, I'm not going to say healthy, but interesting angle of Mitchum has made like made a case to Rory that what he's doing is for Logan's good that she can't just outright reject. Yeah, and like you're absolutely right. Uh I've just grown so desensitized to the Logan plot that I saw this as a scene where Rory acts like a dumbass immediately followed by a scene where Logan acts like a dumbass. Cuz yeah, Rory throws this big London themed bash for Logan. And then in the middle of the party, he's like, Rory, tell me not to go. And she's like, I can't do that. And he's like, tell me not to go. Tell me to tell my dad to like screw off and reject all of that and figure it out and come what may tell me to do that. And she says, I can't, I can't do that. And it's not her job. Yeah, exactly. Like, yes, you're right. That it's that Rory kind of understands where Mitchum is coming from in that moment. But also, it's like, fuck you, Logan, if you know yeah. that's what you're supposed to be. Like, this is this is Logan openly saying, I know what the right thing to do is, but I'm going to be a fucking crybaby about doing it unless my girlfriend makes me. Well, and the funny thing is, it's not even necessarily the right thing to do. It's just the... It is both the thing he doesn't want to do and the path of least resistance. I feel like it's the thing that and it, like it is a productive thing for him it's helpful it's i think i think that telling his dad to fuck off and figuring out how to make his own way even if it means he loses his precious trust fund is the right thing for logan to do for his own mental health but instead he is going to continue on the self-destructive path that he's on because he just can't conceive of giving up a shred of his privilege and money and well, he's going to put that on rory well, the thing is, even if he chose to leave it all behind, we don't know that he would do anything other than drink. Like, this isn't necessarily, like, tell me to leave it all behind and I'll follow my dream of being a painter, poet, I don't care what. It's tell Logan me to having leave it desires all... outside of, like, Partying? having sex with Rory? No. Like, for all we know, he wants to leave it all behind so he can keep doing the same self-destructive stuff he does. And... Not all partying is self-destructive, but jumping out of a plane in a poorly planned thing so you have to go to the hospital is self-destructive. Quite like literally. He has, when he's allowed to do whatever he wants, he's self-destructive. So he, the choice he's presenting, Rory, isn't tell me to reject my privilege and become an adult on my own terms or let me be my father's lackey. The choice he's offering her is let me continue down a path where my life is basically meaningless and dangerous and you have to watch out for me like my mom or, you know, tell me to grow up and be with my dad. Because that's the way the choice has been presented to her most recently. Yeah, like, I whatever. It's pretty garbage. No it's matter garbage how you and look I hate it. it. Uh, that's the Rory plot. He goes to London. The end. Um, Then Lorelai plot is where the real juiciness is. So Lorelai goes... One, Lorelai still avoiding Luke. We actually open where we left off last episode of just Lorelai 
awake but pretending to be asleep at Suki's place. And she's kind of overhearing Suki and Jackson talk about it. And it's like, I don't know what's going on with her. I know it's about Luke, but she won't tell me any details. And Lorelai's just obviously kind of empty inside. And then she goes, like, she gets Miss Patty to cover for her to, like, avoid Luke. Uh, and when Miss Patty asks about it, she's like, oh, we just had a little fight. I'm freezing him out for a little bit. Don't worry about it. But she's obviously still really troubled. She goes to Friday night dinner. And there are two surprise visitors for Friday night dinner. One is Christopher, mm-hmm. which at first Emily's like, oh, yeah, we and, you know, we still owe him a good meal from something. Oh, I you know whatever we owe him. And we're leaving for Europe in two months, like next week. So this is the last chance. So he came over. He's going to join us for drinks and dinner. OK, and they're cool. also showing off the horrible Rory building at Yale. Yeah, whatever. Because we need to make this privilege more ridiculous. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, Rory's getting a building at Yale because they're taking the money they would have spent on Rory's tuition and donating it to get a building in Rory's name. Um, So that is a thing. And then the second surprise guest is a woman by the name of Linny. Uh, we get actually a good number of Gilmore Girls pre-cameos in this episode. I already mentioned Marilyn Ricegub is a troubadour who ended up being Chloe on 24. Was uh, this before or after she was on 24? When did... Oh, actually, you know, this might have been after she was on 24. Now that I think about it, you're right. This was after she was on 24. This is or, a post-cameo. Or while yeah, she was, was on 2001 24. 2001 to 2010, so... Yeah, this is like, but this, this would have been like while she was at the height of her being in 24, actually. Yeah. It was only after like season four or so that Chloe actually became a major character. By the time season six or seven, which is what this would have coincided with, rolled around, Chloe was like Jack's most trusted friend. So, yeah, actually, this isn't a pre cameo. This um, is just a cameo. This is just a cameo. Uh, other pre cameo, the cop that I mentioned earlier was actually, I don't know the name, the, uh, actor's name off the top of my head but Let he was the it. boss at the grocery store on the show raising hope which is a delightfully underrated show especially in the first few seasons especially uh his name is greg binkley greg binkley yes that sounds familiar which uh is definitely a name that fits the man yes uh and then Linny, this second surprise guest for friday dinner is played by uh the actress who plays jan on the office uh melora hardin melora hardin who played jan on the office Anyway, she shows up. She's Emily's old college roommate's daughter. And it quickly becomes apparent that Emily invited both of these people to try to set them up. So she's trying to set Christopher up with this woman. Um, and at first, it's like Emily's being really pushy, but Christopher and Linny are talking and kind of getting along. Eventually, Christopher corners Lorelai and is like, aren't you going to help me? Get me out of this. And Lorelai's like, oh, you want help? He's like, yeah, I'm not interested in her. I didn't know this was going to be a setup. I assumed they were just inviting me over for dinner. I didn't know I was going to be, like, I thought I was going to be eating a dinner with my, my, like, daughter and my friend slash baby mama. I did not know it was going to be a date. So then Lorelai cranks up to 11, makes an ass of herself, and deflects and diffuses the night, and it's great. Um, we established during all of this that Linny is a uh, psychologist, you know, a therapist. And, and specifically a therapist. It was interesting because, like, they kind of throw it away where she's, like, you know, delinquents, where it's, like, runaways and druggies and, like, with all the uh, tenderness that Gilmore Girls scripts have to offer. So she would probably be good at diagnosing someone who 
is kind of trapped in a state of adolescence after running away from home at 16 to give birth to a baby. Yeah. Uh, so then Lorelai's leaving and she sees that Lenny is still parked in the driveway and she's actually on the phone with a patient. And, and she's she, double parked, like trapping her in. Yeah. And so she hangs it up and everything and they talk for a little bit. And it becomes really like, she's like, oh, so you just like help people talk to people whenever. And she's like, yeah, you know, in my line of business, you never know when someone's going to need help. And they talk for a little bit and she's like, Lorelai, do you need to talk about something? And then we smash cut to her laying down in Linny's back seat like it's a therapist couch. And they're talking about Lorelai's whole Luke problem. And, and her marriage problem. Yeah, well, yeah which is, of course, like, the bigger problem of her romantic life, but focused on Luke. And so she just talk about how, like, I never even really thought about getting married. Like, of course, I thought about marrying Christopher back when I was pregnant and people were pushing me to marry Christopher. But that wasn't, that was just because people were pushing me to do it. I didn't really think about marriage as a thing I wanted to do until I met Max. And Max asked me to marry him. And there's a great bit where Lenny says, did you love Max? And she goes, No. <laughs> I wanted like, to. Like, I wanted to for some fucking reason. I still hate that guy. Uh, many, many worse men have been introduced into this show since Max Medina. He seems paltry, much like the villains of, of Dragon Ball Z. He seems paltry compared to the delightfully horrible men that have been introduced since. But, boy, still, you never forget. It's, it, it's, like, it's like the Frieza saga. You, you never, never forget, forget your, your first. first hate. Yes, exactly. They talk for a while, and she's like, I'm tired of waiting. And I feel like I, I was I was waiting for me and Luke to work out for so long. And then all this other stuff is happening. And I I don't know if the, I have no faith this is actually going to happen. And Lenny tells her, like, look, you can't make Luke do anything. You just need to make it clear what you want and what you're willing to give up to get it. And so you either give something up or you wait and that's just how it's got to be because Lorelai specifically says like I want to get married and I want to have another kid and like I I don't I can't do the math on my head right now but she's well no Lorelai's like 38 at this point I mean you can do like 16 plus 21 that's true so 37 37 okay so she's She's not too old to have a kid at this point. Like, but in but a, she's on the older end. She as she gets, she's getting to the point where she's gonna. She has to start doing it. She has to start worrying about it. Yeah. Well, and even just the concerns about older pregnancies are overblown sometimes, from what I've heard. But the number that you hear as a kid is thirty-five. Yeah, which is not necessarily true. Um, but anyway. She's she's at, at an age. No, where but she, she would have that. I guess she would have that number in her head too. For sure, yeah. She is at an age where she's she would be worried about that. And so then we get Lorelai busts into the diner, grabs Luke when he's in the middle of when working it's full, a sh- like mid service. Yeah, like when he's in the middle of a bustling diner and says, "Let's elope right now," and he's like, "Wait, what?" Um, we get one line that officially shatters my theory that the Martha's Vineyard episode isn't canon because she does say at Martha's Vineyard, you'd said you'd be okay with eloping. So like, damn, that episode did actually happen. Um, and he's like, yeah, but like, can we talk about this for a second? And she's like, no. And she drags him out. Like he drags her outside to talk about this. And she's like, look, 
I'm sick of waiting. I want to get married. I I love you. Do you love me? He says, yeah, I love you. Like, okay, let's get married right now. And he's like, wait, we need to talk about this. I also have April to consider, you know, like there's complicated things happening that we need to discuss. And she's like, no, April needs to fit into our lives, not the other way around. Which is fair. It's ish. Ish. This is a very specific situation that makes the calculus involved here a little more complicated. But yes, on the surface, saying your daughter needs to accommodate to me, not the other way around, is pretty fucked up. It is, but like, like this is a this is a different situation, and so it's a little more complicated. Than yeah, that. I was about to say this is like I'm not behind most of what Lorelai does in this scene, but the fact that. He, like, basically ignored all of the history they have when his daughter came in and didn't communicate with her, didn't, like, cooperate with her, didn't include her in any of his plan making. Yes, like, she has a reason Screwed to be up. upset here. But, like, yeah. is this is it's this incredibly frustrating scene where the two of them are just talking past each other. But not in a way that's, like, drama. It's just, like, drama. Good. It's not good drama, it's bad drama. Yeah, and it's in a way that Lorelai and Luke don't usually communicate. Yes. Which could... Or be, haven't before April came around. Yeah, and... which could be compelling if you'd given us a good concrete reason why they're having this issue, but it just chalks it up more to the season-long arc these two have had of, eh, they're just gonna be dumbasses because that's fun. Yep. Um, And so she's like, I'm... I, like we don't we, i'm tired of waiting it's now or never and he's like i don't like ultimatums and she's like well sometimes they have to happen which is bullshit and she's like okay cool fine i'm done and she's like you know she doesn't officially say it but she basically tells luke like we're done we're through and marches off like storms off and he's like fuck right so she breaks up with luke and then shows up at christopher's place and it's like, hey, I had a really rough night. I need someone to talk to. And he's like, okay. So then the first scene was Lorelai, like, pretending to be asleep while things happen behind her. Here we end the same way of Lorelai pretending to be asleep while Christopher is getting Gigi ready for the morning and handing her off to the nanny and getting everything all set. And then just to make it absolutely clear, he climbs into bed and throws his arm around her to make it clear that she showed up and had sex with Christopher immediately yep. after breaking up with Luke. And that Christopher had sex with her. Like, this was a two-way interaction of stupid. Oh, yeah, 100%, 100% pinning all the blame for this on Christopher. Like, Gilmore Ballsy relationship tip. These are always, always obvious relationship tips. Uh, even if you're excited that the girl you like is newly single and apparently into you, if she's emotionally vulnerable... Don't sleep with her. Don't go for it. If she, if she, don't go for it. If it, if, if it truly is going you, to be, ha if it's truly going to happen, she will still want to do you in a week. Just wait a week, guys. At least. Just read uh, the room. Just read the room. Okay, read the room. Anyway, that's anyway. basically everything that happened on the season finale of Gilmore Girls. I hate everything. What happened on Dragon Ball Z Kai? So this might be a little hard to parse out because it was. Technically two distinct episodes, but let's try it. Uh, the Gohan plot actually moves forward for once. Gohan gets angry and fed up with the Supreme Creep doing the Supreme Creep thing, still reading the same comic book. I'm pretty sure they re used animation. 
So he gets mad. He powers up. He's about to just like blast off to Earth or attack the Supreme Creep or something. Uh, but he realizes then that he actually has like, and he specifically goes off because he was like, hey, I've been counting the hours. This has gone longer than you said it would. And he was like, oh, lost track of time. And so that's when he gets mad. But he realizes that he did actually power up. It has unlocked power inside of him. Uh, I'm not sure if it's new power inside of him or he's just angry because that's how Gohan do. But he seems to think it is from the Supreme Creep doing his thing. So the Supreme Creep's like, okay, give me a couple more hours. We'll finish off the ceremony. And Gohan sits down again and apologizes for being impatient. Uh, weirdly, the creepiness comes into the next plot. Um, Boo is still on the watchtower and Piccolo is trying to convince him, hey, just wait until you, after you've killed all the humans. Uh, like, Piccolo is playing the utilitarian game here of how do we create the most good with the least damage. And the most good, no matter what, is going to be defeating Boo. You can get the Dragon Balls, you can bring a lot of people back, you can, you know, do that whole thing. So he maybe can get a little more time if he suggests that Boo goes around and kills everybody. But this is new Boo. New Boo is not playing around. He sets off really pretty fireworks that kill everyone on Earth, except the exceptions we see is that specifically he does not target Mr. Satan and the puppy. Uh, he still cares for them. And he, Tian and Chiao Tzu are able to dodge the attack, so they survive this one. The denizens uh, of Earth are now three men and a puppy. I'd watch that movie. And Piccolo tries to convince him, like, okay, we need an hour. Boo's like, how much is an hour? At which point, Piccolo shows off his new superpower, which is generating hourglasses. I think beginning... he can just materialize matter. Yeah, he can just materialize matter. He just but really only narrowly use only it. uses it for, like, clothes beams. Yeah. Um, and Boo doesn't want to do this, like, the uh, the new evil Boo. But... Piccolo says, like, hey, we've got Mr. Satan's daughter here. And he's like, well, I guess she smells like Mr. Satan, so they must be related. And he says, yeah, no, Mr. Satan's daughter really wants this hour. So could you please do it for her, for Mr. Satan? And at this point, uh, Videl asks, like, wait, does he know my dad? And Piccolo explains the whole thing because he's apparently been using his super listening powers. Um, which, you know, the other... Not much used Piccolo power is his super hearing. And he's been keeping track of what happened on Earth with Boo and Mr. Satan. At this point, Chi-Chi is even more frustrating than usual. We open this episode pretty much with her struggling against the Ox King and getting out. And then just, like, kind of sinking into depression that she can't do anything. But then she, had, like, slapped Boo. Boo turns her into an egg and crushes her. Like, why she does this in the first place? Like, I know Chi-Chi's a hothead, but it just, like, seemed like she just did this because it was relevant to the plot. And she was, like, she just gives Boo a really weak slap. And then he turns her into an egg and crushes her in front of Goten. So Goten is sad and more inclined to fight. Goten and Trunks get shipped off to the hyperbolic time chamber for... About a half an hour, that's about how long until Boo gets sick of watching the countdown and breaks the clock. Uh, so they get about a half hour of training, which is about a week. Uh, or so whatever they get, they get about a week. And that gives them enough time to perfect going beyond Super Saiyan and get a nap in. Uh, 
Piccolo saves them some time, uh, enough time to rest at least, by bringing Boo the long way around to the hyperbolic time chamber, but eventually they come in so they can fight. During this time, Goten and Trunks have obviously spent some time training, especially because Goten is really scared and sad that his mom died, but he knows that if he fights well, he can use the Dragon Balls to bring them back. But also he spent a, like, they spent a lot of time working on special attacks and battle strategy to make the shiniest battle that they can to get the crowd pumped. Trunks has obviously watched way too much Dragon Ball Z, because he describes basically the plot of every Dragon Ball movie, because they figure out they can only go beyond Super Saiyan for, like, five minutes. So his plan is that he's not going to go Super Saiyan when they fuse. He'll wait and do weak attacks and then power up in the last few minutes and beat the bad guy, which is the plot of basically every Dragon Ball movie that I've had to watch is that they kind of do a weak job of fighting for a long time, and then they power up and fight the guy. He also talks about how important... Honestly, I would be convinced that this was a parody of a Dragon Ball fight, because Gotenks talks about how important it is to rile up the audience by going weak at first, and then dragging it out and making it seem like you can't win, but then winning. And then they have a ton of like moves that have names that Gotenks gave them to be cool that actually don't do anything. Like, Hell Zone Grenade, Meet the Milk Zone Parfait. I forget what it was called. It was just all these really stupid names for attacks. And so when when Boo comes in and they start fighting, like, it takes Boo a second before he realizes that these two children confuse and he actually has to wait until they fuse. But once they do, they're giving him all these weak attacks and he's like, oh... My favorite was Screaming Angry Wombat. <laughs> screaming Angry Wombat. They had to get a like note card out of their pocket to remember that their move was called Screaming Angry Wombat, and that came next in the sequence. Like He had obviously choreographed what he wanted to say. He had choreographed what order his moves would go in, how to get the crowd hyped. Because he's still like, a kid. He, he's still a kid. And this is not working. Eventually... They give up, they realize that they need, like, Piccolo gets angry with them and calls them out on this, so they eventually break down and go to Super Saiyan to, like, Piccolo hadn't realized that they could actually switch to Super Saiyan while fused, so this is a relief for him, but they are throwing down. They have a move then that's called the Galactic Donut. This is, like, when they go Super Saiyan, they waste some of that five minutes in Super Saiyan and the 30 minutes in fusion form trying to think through their Rolodex of cool Super Saiyan moves and figure out which one to use and decide on the Galactic Donut, even though it will defeat Boo too quickly. So the Galactic Donut is just like a lasso of energy almost and that they can make bigger or smaller as the need arises. And what they do is they are, at the end of the episode, able to trap Boo in the Galactic Donuts cr- clutches. Piccolo did have some strategy going into this. They point out that if Boo destroys the hyperbolic time chamber from within, the door between the galaxies will be closed and Boo will be trapped in the hyperbolic time chamber forever. The kids will probably be dead at that point, so they can be wished back with the Dragon Balls and Boo will be trapped there, so the 
problem will be mitigated. Really, why they didn't trap Boo in the hyperbolic time chamber in the first place, I don't know. But- yeah, you'd think that they, their thing would just be, oh, there's a thing in the time chamber, and then you lock him in there, and then blow up the entrance. And right, then, like, especially because Piccolo is utilitarian. Like, Piccolo would be the one to take the bomb in there and blow himself up. Yeah, then Piccolo takes the L, gets resurrected, and we're good. Yeah, but that's basically what happened. There was one other moment that I want to talk about later, but what did you think of Gilmore Girls this week? Um, it was fine until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Most of the episode was just kind of there, honestly. Like... The Rory stuff was just kind of there. You're right that there is some interesting stuff happening with the Rory Mitchum Logan dynamic, but also I'm so far beyond giving a shit. Yeah. That like I don't care. I don't care. I I just I cannot bring myself to care at all about like, well, actually Mitchum is kind of right. Like no, fuck you. Mitchum and Logan are both terrible and they both like I hope that their building in London catches on fire so they both die in a fire together. That would be beautiful. Um, The Troubadour plot, like, really? Okay. Okay. We haven't talked about it too much on the show, but I do know for a fact that after this season, the Paladinos got kicked off the show. So for this next season we're going to watch, the the Paladinos are not at all connected to. And actually, just a little bit of nuance there, they weren't necessarily kicked off. They brought forward a contract where they would get two years at a time instead of one year at a time. And that they'd have a little more support on the staff. And the WB, which was becoming the CW, turned it down. Right. Which was a very interesting situation because people were like, oh, so you won't be there on the last season. And Amy Sherman Palladino was like, I don't know why it has to be the last season. I could keep this going for a long time. I have so many ways to reach my ending. And the CW is new. They need viewers and our show does good numbers. So they should have kept me on for a couple more years. But they didn't. They had one more season of the show, and it was a season without the Sherman Palladinos. Or without Amy Sherman Palladino or Daniel Palladino. Either way, this is your. This is possibly, I know they eventually got to do the revival, but this is quite possibly the last episode you will ever get to write with your baby, these characters that you've invested so much time into. And you eat up a good quarter of it with a fucking town troubadour plot? See, this makes perfect sense to me, actually. Uh, Amy Sherman Palladino is a music nerd. Like, she has always been known for her picks in music. How, like, you can see it in Gilmore Girls, but you can see it even more in Mrs. Maisel, where they choose a different song for the end of every episode, and it's usually themed. It's often niche. It's not necessarily of the Mrs. Maisel time period. She really loves her music picks. And if you look through the list of bands that she picked, like, this is a little masturbatory, honestly. Like, for a music nerd to be able to be working with these as part of her plot, like, it's it's not right to look at it as, why are you wasting time on this weird, quirky plot? It's, why are you wasting our time on your final, like, screw you, I know better? Because if you look at it, like, this is Daniel Palladino's quirky town plot. This is Amy Sherman Palladino's love for niche pop culture. This is Amy Sherman Palladino's love for music. All put into a plot. I mean, we had an entire episode that was basically a Bengals concert movie. And if you look at the list of musicians, there is stuff she's doing. Um, When there's the band that gets told that there's no 
jumping in the town square and they're obviously have sound piped in later, that's Sonic Youth. Right. Uh, when you have the, like, earlier in the episode, Yola Tango plays, who um have had their music in Gilmore Girls before, because at the end of the first season, to bring up Max again, when Lorelai says yes to Max's proposal and Rory got back together with Dean, and they're running together in the town covered in daisies with the song playing that was the Yola Tango song, that's their most famous song, Little Corner of the World. The last one is something that she definitely put in there for people who know. Uh, when Luke and Lorelai are arguing in the town square about whether or not to elope, the camera goes to one of the musicians for a very long time, one of the troubadours. And that one was Sam Phillips, um, who I don't really know. But the reason that's important is because Sam Phillips did the song that was used as the dance at Liz and TJ's wedding that was Lorelai and Luke dancing with each other, which is one of the romantic high points for their relationship. So there's like, there is stuff that she was doing. But also who cares? But also who cares? Like, also who cares? And also this was just kind of her proving that she got to. Yeah, it just, it's, it was, it seemed like a waste of time when the Rory plot was so underdeveloped. It was a waste of audience time, absolutely. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a waste of my time. I was just you know, like, I don't give a shit about any. Like, cool, you got to bring a lot of your favorite bands into an episode. That doesn't make it a good episode, right? Yeah, yeah. As opposed to the Unity concert episode of Parks and Rec, where they got to bring a lot of their favorite bands on, and it was actually a good episode. Uh, I mean, are you saying that seasoned Mike Shore was a better showrunner than a young Amy Sherman enough, Palladino? Color me shocked. Uh, so yeah, that is a thing, um, but I mean, obviously the thing to talk about in this episode is the end. Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm repeating myself at this point, even though this is technically a new development, like, Lorelai and Luke's upright refusal to communicate in a way that human beings ever communicate, was it a fever pitch here? Lorelai, like, Lorelai runs in, and again, I use this word very pointedly, Lorelai is, like, is hysterical. Like, she's acting like the stereotype of a shrieking, we have to get married or else, insane woman. Like, she's acting like the stereotype of, oh, you let the chicks get attached and suddenly they want marriage. And it's frustrating to watch, it's out of character, and frankly, it's insulting to Lorelai as a character. Yeah, and there would, like, there are ways to do this where if Luke had been freezing her out instead of her freezing Luke out, where she's just, like, trying to talk about it, trying to talk about it, and because she can't, she feels like she's going crazy, and so she does Right, then it would make sense for her to snap. But her snapping didn't really, like... I understand that's supposed to be the boiling over point of this drama between them that's been simmering all season, but... They forgot to turn the stove on at any point throughout this entire plot. So it's just a pot of water sitting on the stove and you're trying to tell me it's this dramatic boiling over point and it's not. It's like, no, this is just fucking stupid. Uh, so that was frustrating. It's just a pot on the stove and then Amy Sherman Palladino grabs it and throws it all over the kitchen. It's yeah, like, exactly. it's boiling. It's like, no, it's not. This is a stupid thing in the first place. Why are we doing it? Like, just give me some damn pasta. And so, like, 
that's frustrating. And then, okay, I understand she goes to Christopher. That makes sense. They've been getting closer over the course of the season. They literally just had a, a, a bonding experience together and they've become really good friends. It would make sense that if she's had a hard, if she just went through something really hard and she doesn't feel like she can talk to Suki about it for reasons that the series refuses to explain, then the second person she would go to would probably be Christopher. But I do not, be- I, I do not believe that the Christopher we have seen over the course of this season would sleep with a clearly emotionally fragile woman, especially one with whom he has such a complex entanglement as Lorelai. Yeah, maybe last maybe Christopher who broke down yeah. at the wedding and said that kissing a girl at 13 was the greatest right, moment but of we've, his we've life. Been, we, they've spent all of his appearances this season have been to convince us that this is a Christopher who has reflected on his past mistakes and how him busting in on the yep. wedding, like, you know, busting in and almost breaking up Luke and Lorelai last season was kind of rock bottom for him. And he has now built himself yep. back up. So, yeah, I would believe it last season. I don't believe it for a second this season. And all that really tells me is that all of that I'm changed that we've gotten out of Christopher was all bullshit. Especially because, like, I don't know that I believe that Christopher, like, has been harboring a crush on Lorelai through this season. I don't I don't believe that from the performances he has shown up with. The the thing, though, that they are trying to sell you on, whether or not that works, is that he and Lorelai have been working together more as parental units for Rory together. Yeah. But that's not the same thing. No. So it was frustrating. Everything about that little that little jumble of story at the end there was both frustrating and out of character for everybody involved. Yeah. And it, I mean, I'm not surprised, though. Like, it is the classic, oh, shit, we got the will they, won't they couple together. Now we need to break them up because the series isn't over yet. Well, and it's really weird to do it at this point because the Sherman Palladinos are putting out toys they'll never get to play with. So they're setting up Luke and Lorelai breaking up and her getting together with Christopher. She doesn't get to play with that. They're setting up Logan leaving and Rory being conflicted about it. They're not going to get to resolve that. Yeah, really, the big it's, fuck you to the network would be to just have Lorelai and, and and Luke get married. Like, have them elope. Have her be like, hey, we need to elope. And he him, like, fuck, we're acting super out of character anyway. Have him be like, fuck it, let's do it. And then they go elope. Like, fuck you, network, we did it. Like, Right, and it feels like they're trying to get to a point where they can take their toys back later by creating drama and then like make forcing other people to figure it out then i don't know this is not based on anything real but maybe they thought the network would come crawling back oh they try to dan harmon it right but especially if amy sherman palladino was thinking there could be more than one final season but the thing is rory is a junior in college the next year is going to be her senior year it makes sense as a place to cap and the show hasn't been good for years at this point like well and on top of i mean i'm sure she thought her own show was i'm sure but still or wouldn't tell anybody if she didn't but we know now like 
fans of from the Gilmore Girls side uh, already know this, and I'll just not say it for Dragon Ball people, but we know what Amy Sherman Palladino is trying to lead to, and it gets stupider every year that it goes past, like, it it's it's old milk. Yeah. Like, it has an expiration date. It's coming for the point that it can be the message she's trying to get. But the thing is, it's milk. I don't, like, it's a weird off-brand milk that I don't want in the first place. So, yeah. Whatever. So, like, I, I don't know. I guess that's what I thought of this episode is it was there until it wasn't, you yeah. know? And then it made me mad. But I, I'm kind of numb at this point. Like, I'm not even really that upset about it. Compared yep. to, like, end of season four with Rory sleeping with Dean, that I was very upset about this. I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I'm i beyond I'm beyond being emotionally invested at this point. Uh, what did you think of these episodes of Dragon Ball Z Kai? You know, Grant? Yeah. I'm split. You're split? <laughs> I'm split. Well, the Boo stuff is kind of interesting. Like, the... The piccolo machinations of what can I do to take this horrible situation and make it as good as possible like piccolo understanding how to manipulate boo's affection for mr satan to get more time piccolo trying to kill the entire planet to get more time because he knows that he has dragon balls piccolo leading him the wrong way piccolo having the fight in the hyperbolic time chamber so they can have a out if they even if they lose that's all cool interesting the kind of stuff i don't get out of dragon ball yeah piccolo's a fucking champ in this episode piccolo's a champ in this episode i'm not i'm not a fan of the kind of character they're like the cocky kid doesn't work for me but like they're executing it really well where you can justify all the stupid things gotenks is doing by the fact that he's a kid he's cocky he thinks he's got this nailed down and also kids act like this they like put together elaborate rituals and situations and they want to make sure the adults who have given them this responsibility are proud of them and they think that they're cool and give them attention and credit that all rings true like i said you know it's almost like dragon ball has become self-aware to the things that frustrate me about their battles that's all great uh once again i'm not I'm frustrated by this Gohan plot that I know is going to go nowhere. I was frustrated by Chi-Chi just kind of taking the stupid ball for the episode. Like, yes, I know she's impulsive and she'd do anything for her kid, but... She absolutely just, just got fridged in the in the interest of right. Goten's character arc. Yeah, I mean, like, I know using the phrase fridged is charged because it got used too much on the internet in the early 2010s, late 2000s, but... She is a woman who was killed for no other reason than to advance a male character's... Yeah, this is textbook fridging. This is textbook fridging, and just Chi-Chi running up to do something stupid, getting turned into an egg and then squashed is really insulting to her as a character, and she's usually pretty disappointing when you compare her premise to how she's executed, so it takes a lot for her to be disappointing. And the other thing that annoyed me, and this was just a few moments of the episode, but it really frustrated me that Kai didn't cut it, was Roshi basically explains this whole Piccolo plan. And so he's explaining to her, like, yes, your kid might die, but Piccolo has a plan to keep us safe, and then we can have the Dragon Balls bring the kids back. He's actually, like, the reasonable adult in the situation who's smart enough to see what Piccolo is doing and explain it. And demonstrating that he is a wise master, and so he would be able to see these tactics. Right, but at the same time, he's telling Bulma, your kid's gonna die. Like, this is, 
even if he's going to come back immediately, that's still got to be rough for a mom to know her kid's going to die. And then they cut immediately to Roshi shoving his head in Bulma's butt saying, rubby rubby like an apple. Yeah, it... And then a second later, cut to him shoving his head in Bulma's crotch. And when she yells at him to cut it out, he's like, oh, you know, can't you pity an old man? I know I complain about them reusing animation, but couldn't they have cut in a few more seconds of Boo and Gotenk staring at each other? That didn't have to be there, didn't have anything to do with the plot, didn't advance any characters, it just made Roshi worse. And it, like, killed the... And like, it killed the mood. Yeah, it killed the tone of the scene. It killed the tone of the scene, absolutely. But then also was, like... Not just that Roshi is a creepy old man, not just that Roshi is grabbing a woman without her consent and assaulting her, but he's assaulting her right after telling her her kid is gonna die. Yeah, that's fucked up even for Roshi. Right. Like, there's there's a longer discussion to be had over, like, the in general, the, like, ho-ho pervy old man trope, right? Right, and the culture around that right. and why it came into being short. Right, but I think, I think no matter what your feelings are on that trope, we can all agree that there are better and worse ways to do it. Yeah. And that is something that I feel like Toriyama has no pulse on, on when it is and isn't. No. Like, you could definitely argue it's never appropriate to play that trope, but if we want to, if we're taking the premise that there are times right. when it is appropriate to play that trope, he seems to never, it's like, he, it's just, he's just throwing blind at a dartboard. And sometimes he nails it, right? Or as much so as you can nail it can with nail that. It. Yeah, but, like, yeah. Most of the time he yeah. doesn't, though. It's not funny. It's weird that it comes out of nowhere. It breaks the tone of the scene and it makes him a worse person. Like on every level it fails. Yeah, it doesn't. It just doesn't work. It's really frustrating. And and it's only a few seconds of the episode, but it left such a sour, weird, like not even just like, oh, men are gross. And the men who wrote this are gross. Like not even just that, but like the why here and now, especially like when it had nothing to do with the plot, it could have been edited out very easily, and they had that option. Yeah, I would be really curious to talk to the people who edited Kai and 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 really try to understand what their what their priorities and philosophy were behind it, because for the most part, in general, given the material yeah. they had, Kai is a, oh, yeah. a pretty damn good abridging of the series. But then occasionally these whiff across the plate. And it's like Really, guys? And I feel like we've had more of them since we've gotten into the Boo arc. Definitely. Uh, what questions do you have about Gilmore Girls? Uh, you know, I don't think I have any... I don't I don't think I have any questions about this episode of Gilmore Girls. I... It's just... It is what it is. I, I have no questions. Do you have any questions about Dragon Ball? Yeah, I have a couple. And these aren't about this specific episode, but how a couple of the main features of this series work. Specifically, the hyperbolic time chamber and the Dragon Balls. Okay. Uh, which means that I will not get the answers I want. Um, before, we've been told that only two people are allowed to go in the hyperbolic time chamber at once. Yeah, they forgot. Uh, which is what... Cool. Toriyama forgot. Next. But I mean, even if they forgot within this episode, why wouldn't Piccolo or somebody, Krillin even, go in to help the boys train? Yeah, it. I feel like it almost has to be that Toriyama forgot 
in the time between writing the whatever chapters encapsulated those two plot points. Because it seems like a really bad idea if you have any other options to put two children in a room alone in charge of their own training regimens. Even if they're like incredibly powerful children, they don't have like teaching and being powerful are not the same. Well, and it's been established they have no discipline. Like that's been thoroughly established. And it's actually nice they do show that a bit in this episode where Trunks is just like kind of wandering around and complaining about the food and complaining about the temperature and Goten's like just starts training immediately. Yeah, Goten's determined because he just saw his mom die. And so he's like, I'm going to make Boo pay. But yeah, you'd think they'd send Krillin in or yeah, have like trust somebody else to stall and have Piccolo go in. Even Videl, like somebody, an adult or near adult, an older person should be in there with them. I I don't have a good answer for why they didn't do that. Um, And then, yeah, the only two people thing that like Toriyama obviously forgot because... Boo and Piccolo are in there. So there's four people in the time chamber there. Or three after fusion. Or three after fusion, um, but still. Okay, so there is this, like, we are told in this episode a couple times that... Oh, actually, you know minute, what? I what? think, I think that might actually make sense because I I can't remember. I don't think the two people thing was a a, a, a limit of the laws of space and time. I think the two people thing was because... The like the stores there can only store enough food for two people. Okay, I think is why they were limited to two in the Android or in the Cell Saga, because if more than two people went in, they'd run out of food before the year was up. Gotcha. I mean, they I could think. have brought in food for Yamcha, but whatever. I think. Um, that kind of makes sense. So we're told repeatedly in this episode that one minute outside of the time chamber is six hours inside of the hyperbolic time chamber. But also in this episode, we see Piccolo communicating in real time psychically with the kids in the time chamber. I was wondering the same thing. Uh, I think the answer there is... Shouldn't there be a huge, like... Yeah, there should there should definitely be, like, a, a Voices from a Distant Star thing going on there. I know that this is not the sh- kind of show that thinks about that, though. Uh, psychic powers. Next question. Once again, we've repeatedly said that we're going to use the Dragon Balls to wish everybody back and everything will be fine. What about the people who were wished back with after Vegeta killed them with the first wish on the Dragon Balls? These are Dende's Dragon Balls, but like the original Kami Dragon Balls, you cannot wish someone back who's already been wished back before. So by wishing those people back before, did Bulma kill all of them? Uh, I don't, I, that might be, that, uh, that, that gets into some moral philosophy That's a sad question that gets into some moral philosophy but at the very least she inadvertently denied manslaughtered them, them. Me, cosmic manslaughter possibly uh i don't remember exactly how all of the people of earth get resurrected um the plan right now is to use the earth dragon balls i genuinely don't remember if it's some other method that they may end up doing it. Um, but yeah, if we're going by rules as written, then uh, yeah, all the people that Vegeta killed at the World Martial Arts Tournament would not get to be wished back. One last question. This is not about this episode, but when I was puzzling through all that, a question arose. We talk about how you can only be brought back once by the Earth Dragon Balls. 
is that limit tied to the caster, the victim, or the dragon? If we have somebody who has been brought back once before by Purunga, does it matter if Shenron raises him? If someone was raised by the Kami Dragon Balls, can they be raised by the Dende Dragon Balls because they're technically different? Like, how is that counter incremented? Or is it always like, if you've been raised once by any Dragon Balls, you cannot be raised again because you have been raised once? So, I believe... I believe it's the caster, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, because way back on Namek, okay? Okay. Frieza killed Vegeta. Then they used Kami's Earth Dragon to wish back everybody killed by Frieza and his men, so Vegeta came back. Now Vegeta's dead again. Later, I mean, you've seen later stuff, you know Vegeta's gonna come back and Vegeta's gonna be returned to life, right? I am fairly certain that when that happens, it is also on a wish from the Earth Dragon, but it's Dende's Earth Dragon. Okay. So, by that, I mean, the easy answer is Toriyama forgot, but I believe then that means that your resurrection is tied to the caster who is currently linked with that dragon. So when Shenron passed hands from Kami to Dende, I believe everybody got reset. Okay. I think. I might be wrong. I might be misremembering the stuff that happens in the future. We can keep an eye out for it. But I believe, I believe next time Vegeta gets wished back, it is by Shenron. Okay. Who do you want to swap? Oh, my. Um... I want to swap Gotenks and Rory. Okay. So that when Boo walks into the hyperbolic time chamber, instead of the, like, dumb rehearsed, we're going to bring you down, Boo, thing that Goten and Trunks had waiting for him, he would instead be confronted with Rory's terrible British accent, which might kill him and save the world. (laughs) And meanwhile, Logan... Spends his last night before he leaves babysitting. Yeah, meanwhile, Gotenks shows up at Logan's graduation party, and let's be real, that situation would end with Gotenks punching Logan in the dick. (laughs) Yeah. There is no other possible end to that interaction. If it's Gotenks and Logan in a room together, that dick's getting punched. See, I have another thing that would end in dick punching. Awesome. Uh, Really, in this episode... Chi-Chi and Bulma got the short end of the stick. Uh, they did. Yeah, they both definitely did get shortchanged by the writers. I want to swap them with Jackson and Suki, because in the beginning of the episode, Jackson and Suki are whispering around the house, and they're trying to whisper and talking about how quiet they have to be to Davy, but they're stage whispering, and Laurel, I can hear every word. In this episode, we see the Z fighters do a fantastic job of whispering quietly, so Lorelai would still get a good night's sleep, and maybe if she'd slept enough, she wouldn't be, like, I'm not saying that any, like, you know, women, they're so unreasonable, but, like, everybody's a little more unreasonable when they're sleepy because they get grumpy. So if she had gotten a full eight, nine, ten hours, maybe she wouldn't have approached the situation in the same way and she would have actually broken up with Luke like a reasonable human being or made a plan to communicate with each other. Meanwhile, we put Suki and Jackson 
on the watchtower. And while they're all waiting to die, they get omelets with fresh vegetables in them. And that's a better way to go. As long as Chi-Chi isn't in the omelet, then you're good. It's true. I chose omelets accidentally and then realized it got real dark. That's a boot plot for you. Um, I think that's it for this week. Thank you all for listening. We'd love to hear from you on social media. Our Facebook is Gilmore Ball Z. Our Twitter is at Gilmore Ball Z. Our email is GilmoreBallZ at gmail.com. And our WordPress is GilmoreBallZ.wordpress.com. We won't have time to read your responses on our season finale next week uh, because we are going to be recording that right after this. But anything you write us, we will read. We love seeing them. We'll probably respond, and we might read it on our season finale next season for season seven. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Facebook, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. We might read those as well. We will see you next week for our season finale, where we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of season six of Gilmore Girls in the last season or so of episodes of Dragon Ball Z. We'll see you then. So... What type of omelet would Chi-Chi make? Would it be salty? When Rory inevitably fails as a journalist, will she become a terrible party planner? And which of the Z-Fighters would make the best town troubadour? Yamcha does have that cat song. Find out next time on the season finale of Gilmore Ball Z.